I want to ask you to turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 14 through 16 of chapter 3 and then continue on in chapter 4 through verse 5. First Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Please give your full attention to God's word. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything God, created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. You've probably noticed that in these letters that Paul, the Apostle Paul, has written to young Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. You'll see that he reminds him, and we will see even more so in future passages, how he reminds him over and over of his primary, highest priority in ministry. That's to hold fast to the Word of God, to handle it carefully and correctly, and to defend it from the attacks of false teachers. This solemn charge is placed upon Timothy's shoulders over and over again in these letters. Let me just uh, take you over for a moment to chapter 6 and look at how Paul ends this first letter that he writes to Timothy. He says, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the ir irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. And then just turn over one page to chapter or to the second Timothy chapter 1 verses 13 and 14. He says, "Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you." Timothy's highest priority to guard the good deposit entrusted to him the gospel, the word of God that has been placed in his hands to teach and disciple the church. Well, here in, at the end of chapter 3, in verse 15, Paul calls the church, the whole church, not just Timothy, not just the elders, but the whole church, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, that may sound like a strange phrase because we think of where Paul elsewhere says that the word of God, the word of the apostles and the prophets is the foundation of the church with Christ as the cornerstone. But here, 
Paul kind of switches the language and he calls the church, and particularly the church there in Ephesus, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And what he's saying is that the church is here in this fallen world to support the truth, to protect it, to guard it, to cherish it, and like pillars to hold it up high for the world to see and to hear. Supporting, protecting, holding fast to the truth. We must never let down our guard for that truth is being assaulted daily until Christ returns. Then in verses one and two of chapter four, Paul warns Timothy about professing Christians that are going to be led astray, that already are being led astray, and until Christ comes back, will be led astray to the teaching of demons. It's very strong language. To the teaching of demons, which he says is being spread in the churches by liars whose consciences are seared. We still are buffeted every day by false teaching certainly from outside the church, but even very much so within the church. That's why we must be on guard. And false teaching, Paul says, has two sources. First of all, Satan himself. All false teaching, all teaching that contradicts the truth revealed from God ultimately comes from Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, according to the Lord Jesus. And then the second source, Paul says, are those human liars who unwittingly represent Satan by spreading his lies in the church in order to lead people astray. These liars, these false teachers, have seared consciences, he says. The word there is the word we, from which we cauterized. The idea of, of like skin being burned to the point where the nerves are dead, it's beyond feeling. These false teachers are unable to feel the shame and the guilt of their lies and the effect of their lies in leading other people astray. But then it's interesting how Paul applies it to the church in Ephesus, to the issues that Timothy had to face. What was this teaching of demons, this horrific teaching of demons filled with lies? What, what is it that was threatening Timothy's church? Were these false teachers denying the resurrection of Christ? Were they denying the atonement? Were they denying the deity of Christ? No, Paul says they forbid marriage and we require abstinence from foods. It's interesting that he would put those kinds of teachings in the category of teaching of demons, the lies of Satan. At this point, we know, and it's something you have to be aware of when you study the entire New Testament, that there was a philosophy of the world, a philosophy of the Roman world, a philosophy of Greek philosophy, a philosophy coming from the Greek culture that was infecting the church. Just as with a part of our guarding the truth is being aware of the philosophies of our own cultures and how they're starting to twist and distort the truth within the church. What was going on in the first century is this teaching of Gnosticism was starting to creep into the church. And one of the basic teachings of Gnosticism was that this physical world, this physical reality is evil. That, is, that anything that is physical and material is inherently bad, it's evil. 
And so to be spiritual, to be enlightened, was to deny physical reality or to reject physical reality and seek out the pure, which is only spiritual. And when these Gnostic people came into the church, what they would do is they would distort and twist the word of God. They would go to the Old Testament. They would look at the law of God. They would look at all the, the intricate uh, food laws. They would look at all of these instructions giving, given in God's word, and they would twist it into a kind of legalism and asceticism. They would say, see, this proves it, that we need to, to in order to be pure, in order to be good, in order to be enlightened, we need to reject material things. And the way to draw near to God then, the way to become righteous was to deny the physical and seek out the spiritual. And it's interesting that Paul focuses in on two of their restrictions on marriage or sexual relations and food. Because when you think about it, are these not the two most powerful desires in our lives? The desire for sex the desire for food. And so the world's way of dealing with these powerful desires for things, for material things, the way the world deals with it is to deny those things, to have them taken away, to get them out of our lives. Legalism, asceticism. And Paul taught clearly, if you go over to Colossians chapter two, there Paul states his position on Denying material things as a means to righteousness, he states it very clearly. Let me read to you beginning in verse 20. He says, if Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. The church of Jesus Christ has always struggled with how to live with the things, the things in this world that we desire. We see the dangers of having things, possessing things, being surrounded by material things and things that give us pleasure, either to whatever sense, the five senses that God has given us. And we, in our culture, I think, struggle as much as any culture, because we have been so inundated with material things. I saw a Pew Research study that was done a few years ago that was seeking to determine worldwide standards of living. So in other words, when we talk about standards of living, we're always comparing ourselves within our own culture. But what the Pew Research Center tried to do was to go worldwide and say, how do you as an individual in your standard of living compare to everybody in the world, not just the people in your own culture? What they found is that by the world's standards, 88% of Americans are considered upper middle class or upper class. And by the world's standards, 95% of Americans are middle class or higher. 95% of Americans. That's how rich we are. And we as the church, in that abundance, in that wealth, 
struggle to know what does it mean to love God and live with things. We have voices shouting at us every day. If you can afford it, buy it. If you can't afford it, put it on credit. And if it feels good, do it. What does it mean to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ in that environment? How do we live faithfully as disciples with all the stuff that's in our lives? All the pleasures, physical, material pleasures that are available to us. Many Christians have, in the past, they've sought to control their lust for things, for pleasure, by living simply. Minimizing the material things in our lives and the earthly pleasures in our lives. Monasteries were once thought of as being the epitome of true spiritual living. And how many of us, even today, will drive east of here through the beautiful farm valleys and look at the Amish farms and even covet that simple lifestyle where they've put away so many of the modern things that make our lives so convenient and comfortable. It's like materialism and asceticism are the two ends of the spectrum and we keep going like a pendulum swing from one to the other trying to figure out what does true discipleship look like. Well, what Paul is saying very clearly here is that asceticism, putting away material things, sacrificing, rejecting them, isn't the answer to materialism. That will not make us holy. That will not draw us near to God inherently. How do we keep the material things in our lives from hindering our relationship with God? How do we avoid materialism? Or more simply, how do we love both God and his gifts? The first two answers that Paul gives are theological. The first answer is you learn to love both God and his gifts by understanding Jesus Christ, by understanding who he is and what he has done. We didn't originally have the end of chapter three and the beginning of chapter four together in the same preaching passage, but I'm glad by God's providence that we ended up making that adjustment and putting them together because I think they're very intimately connected. In, in verse 16, Paul calls the truth that is entrusted to this church, this truth that we are to support and to hold up high, this truth that is this great deposit that's been entrusted to our hands as the church, he calls it the mystery of godliness. The mystery of piety. The mystery of living in a way that is pleasing to God. And then he summarizes this truth with six lines of creed. And there are many commentators who believe this was an early creed of the church. Just like we say the Apostles' Creed in our worship, that this was probably an early creed, maybe a hymn, but, but at least it was a statement that summarizes the basic truth that is this good deposit that's entrusted into the hands of the church. And as you look carefully at, at these six lines describing who Jesus is and, and what he came to do, the central contrast is between the glory of Jesus' existence in heaven both before his birth and then after his ascension to the right hand of the Father. The contrast between that and his earthly ministry. And really that was the purpose of his coming was to join heaven and earth in a real sense. 
He begins by saying he was manifested in the flesh. Now again, thinking he's addressing this asceticism, this Gnosticism that said that the material world was evil. And a matter of fact, the, this false philosophy taught that, that if there were gods, that, that these gods, there were evil gods that created the world. And that's why the world is evil. But the truth is that the eternal son of God added to his divine nature a human nature. He was manifested in the flesh. He took upon himself a human body. That very doctrine is destructive to the idea that this world is evil and that material things are to be inherently rejected. Jesus Christ experienced life in the material world. Jesus Christ was a man just like us except without sin. He walked, he talked, he ate, he drank, he slept. He experienced the pleasure of good food and drink. He enjoyed the beauty of art and music. He experienced the great sight and smell of beautiful flowers. Jesus Christ, the scriptures tell us, this truth entrusted into our hands, Jesus Christ created all things and then entered into his creation and he not only gave us the material world, but he lived in it and enjoyed it. But then the rest of the creed goes on to describe his redemptive work. It says he was vindicated by the Spirit. He was shown to be the eternal Son of God by the power of the Holy Spirit in his earthly ministry through his miracles, but primarily through his resurrection from the dead. That's what Paul teaches in Romans 1 verse 4. He says he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was vindicated by the Spirit. It goes on to say he was seen by angels. You see this connection. His earthly ministry was witnessed by the cloud of angels in heaven and primarily refers to the angels who witnessed the glories of his resurrection. Then it goes on to say he was proclaimed among the nations by the apostles and the church and believed on in the world. The message of the importance of the meaning importance of his resurrection, his death and his resurrection were proclaimed to the world as the gospel and believed. And then he, it says, was taken up in glory. He left this earthly existence, remained both fully God and fully man and took his throne in heaven. As a result of this redeeming work, Paul tells us in Romans 8 that this material world will be made perfect once again. That this material world will participate in the restoration of all things. Romans 8, beginning in verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not 
only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. You see, this gospel is not only about spiritual deliverance, not only about forgiveness and reconciliation with God in a spiritual sense, but it's about the restoration of all things, the whole creation. This material world, plants, animals, hills, trees, planets will be renewed and restored to perfection as a result of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. And the pleasures that now tend to lead us into sin in this world will in that day perfectly lead us into worship. And so the gospel is the key, the theological key to loving both God and his good gifts in this world. We begin with the gospel, that Jesus Christ created the world and is restoring to the world to what it was originally intended to be. And we can already taste of that restoration as we begin to love God and love his gifts in the way that he originally intended. The second theological truth that Paul mentions is that we learn to love God and his gifts by understanding creation. Verse four, he says, for everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected. Every material thing was created by God. Nothing was created by the devil. Every material thing was created by God. Yes, it's affected by the fall, corrupted by the fall, but every material thing was created by God. A proper view of creation is foundational to how we view the material things in our lives. At the beginning, it says that God saw all that he had made and it was very good. So who are we to reject any material thing that God has called very good? Even after the fall, there are no evil things. Sin is never found in a thing. Sin is in our intentions, in our actions. That's what makes sin, not material things. Fire, for example. Fire, where would we be without fire? Fire is a powerful force for good, but yet if it's used wrongly, is a powerful force for evil and destruction. The key is in understanding how God intended for his creations to be used and enjoyed. Because you not only have the, the creation doctrine that God created all things and he created all things good, but God created all things for his purpose. And all things are to be used according to his will. And that becomes the key to our life of discipleship, recognizing that every material thing in our life, every physical pleasure in our life was given to us as a gift from God. It was created by God, and it is to be used according to his will, the way that the designer intended it to be used. This is where we get the, the concept that's basic to discipleship of godly moderation in all things. Doesn't mean just being kind of halfway in all things. What it means is understanding God's will for how these things and pleasures were to be experienced and then using these things according to his will. I think that's an element that's often missed, missed even among Christians in dieting. When I look and listen to what all the popular fad diets are out there, and I've lived long enough to know many different fads in dieting, so many of them sound like legalistic, 
worldly asceticism to me. Let me, let me say, say what I mean here. What I mean is so many of them treat the good gifts that God has given as evils to be avoided as opposed to receiving them as God's good gifts, but using them in the way that God intended. So many worldly diets seem like legalistic asceticism, exactly the kind of thing that Paul is warning us against in this passage, where they deny the body through human willpower. Our goal should be to enjoy the foods that God has given us in the way in which he intended them to be enjoyed. And yes, medicine, science is good in helping us to determine how best to use the gifts that God has given. But the point is to enjoy them as God intended. Third key to loving God and his gifts is to do so by receiving these gifts with thanksgiving. Look at verse four. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. If we receive a material thing or enjoy a material thing with thanksgiving, then that is what God always intended. That's the way to love God and his gifts. This is what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world. Our thankfulness for what we have. Isn't that true when you look at the world around you? Isn't that what sets Christians apart? That we understand that we are 100% thankful for the material things that we have, or at least we should be. Verse three says that God created food to be received with thanksgiving by those who know and believe the truth. We know where it all comes from and we know how undeserving we are. It's a shame that Saying grace before meals is kind of a tradition that is out of vogue even within the church. It's a powerful testimony when we sit down at a meal, especially in a public place, and before stuffing it into our mouths, we stop, we bow our heads, and we thank the Lord for providing it. Now, I know you can do that in a showy way, in a legalistic way, something that's about your glory and not God's glory. I'm not talking about that kind. But when it's done with a sincere heart, it's a powerful testimony that even that meal from McDonald's is a gift from God. Maybe most of it anyway. To be received with thanksgiving as a gift from him. But I have this great quote from G.K. Chesterton. He wrote, it's actually written in a lyrical form, so it's, it's kind of a poem. He says, you say grace before meals, all right, but I say grace before the play and the opera and grace before the concert, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That's the attitude that sets the Christian apart, is that any good thing, any good pleasure in life is given to us as a gift of grace. That's why we start with the gospel. Because I think that's one of our problems as Americans who are taught the, the, the ethic of hard work is that we feel like we have earned everything that's ours. That our possessions, we deserve our possessions. And if we don't have what other people have, we don't have what we deserve. But we start with the gospel and say, we don't deserve anything. We deserve hell. We don't deserve the next breath that we breathe, let alone any good thing in our lives. 
We deserve none of the things that we quote unquote possess or any of the pleasures that we enjoy. The gospel is our baseline to life that tells us that everything in our life that is good is a gift that was bought for us at the cross, at the shedding of the very son of God on the cross. And I'll tell you this, that it's very difficult to be first of all aware of how undeserving you are of any good gift from God. And then to receive it anyway, and then to thank God for it, and then to turn around and abuse it or overindulge in it or treat it as an idol. You see, it's in the key of how you look at it, how you look at God and how you look at who you are before God that is the key to enjoying his good gifts. The redeemed life is to be characterized by gratitude. The Heidelberg Catechism, which was written hundreds of years ago, as a summary of how we're to, to believe and to live the Christian life, question number two says, what must, you know, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Talking about the comfort of the gospel. The answer is three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So in other words, once you understand the gospel and receive the gospel, the rest of your life is about gratitude, thankfulness. You look at everything, everyone, with thankfulness because you deserve nothing good. But we have been given all things in Christ. And this is how even material things can be a means to drawing near to God, to loving God. When I was growing up, my mother was a great cook, and one of the things that she was best at was apple pie. We had apple trees outside the back of our house, and she made apple pie. As a matter of fact, people think this is bizarre, but we literally, she would make six or seven apple pies at a time and then put them in the freezer and then pull them out and cook them when one of them ran out. So I literally had apple pie, homemade apple pie, every day that I was growing up. And so when we got married, my wife had a tremendous burden placed upon her shoulders that I was leaving my mother and therefore leaving my mother's apple pie. So my wife, because she loves me, she discipled underneath my mother while my mother was still living and learned how to make apple pie in this secret, I don't know what it is, or some secret method for making this apple pie. It's the best apple pie on earth. And she learned the secret. And she doesn't make it for me every day. We don't have any in the freezer. Matter of fact, it's kind of a rare gift because she doesn't cook a lot, but she makes the best apple pie that I've ever tasted, just like my mother's. Do you know when she makes it for me? When I'm down and discouraged, when I've had a hard week, when life is difficult, I'll come home and there's an apple pie. Or when something great happens in my life and I'm celebrating, she makes an apple pie to celebrate. And that, that gift is so precious to me because it shows me how much she loves me, how much she supports me, how unconditional her love is for me. I just wish that I could look at every gift in my life the same way because what it does is it not only makes me thankful for my wife, but thanks, makes me thankful to God because God gave me her and through her that wonderful apple pie. I just wish I could see all of life that way. 
That way I would be able to enjoy the good gifts that God has given in a way that draws me close to God. That re-zeroes my focus in upon him. And that brings us to the last step, to living as a disciple faithfully with the things that God gives us. We learn to love God and his gifts by consecration. Verse five, it says that a creation of God is to be enjoyed because it is made holy, or that's the word, that fancy word, consecrated. It is made holy or consecrated by the word of God and prayer. To consecrate something is to make it holy. What does that mean? It means to set it apart from an ordinary worldly use to a holy use. To be used according to God's purposes, to be used to his glory. We do this every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We set apart a very normal, mundane pieces of bread and wine or juice from its ordinary purpose and we set it apart to a holy purpose. We consecrate it by prayer. Do your possessions and pleasures in your life, the material things in your life, do they give glory to God or do they give glory to you? Do they ultimately serve your purposes or God's purposes? You see, this is when we really reach that point where we're able to enjoy things the way that God intended, is if we do it to his glory and for his purposes. I'm reminded of Augustine in the 400s AD. He said, he loves thee too little who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. The language there is a little awkward, but I've learned that it's the key to enjoying good things to God's glory. Let me read it for you again. He loves thee too little, speaking to God. He loves thee, God, too little, who loves anything together with thee, which he loves not for thy sake. Do you love the things and the pleasures in your life for God's sake? The psalmist says in, in Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, that's what I've been saying in this whole message is that it's about the attitude of your heart, not, not the things that you possess. What is your attitude towards them? How do you receive them? How do you enjoy them? How do you use them? This is one of the keys to spiritual maturity because it's not enough. Most of us as Christians get to the point where we can say, at least say, if, even if we don't think this way most of the time, that all of God's creations are good things to be enjoyed. But it's not enough to go only to that point. You've got to take it to the next step, which is to say that our pleasure must be in the giver and not in the gift primarily. That as we take pleasure in the gift, it points us to the giver of the gift. When you hear a great concert, or you make a trip to the Grand Canyon, or you read a good book, or you see a good movie. That can either be a revelation of God's glory that draws you closer to him, or it can be an idol that draws you away from him or distracts you from him. Titus chapter 1 verse 15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. You see what he's saying there? If you receive God's good gifts with thanksgiving, use them according to his will and give the glory to him 
in the use of them, all things are pure. All material things are pure. All material pleasures are pure. But if you don't give glory to him, if you interact with the things and pleasures of this world in the way to your own glory, to your own purposes, then nothing is pure. Because it's defiled, Paul says, in the mind, in the heart. You see, unbelievers will, you know, if there's a beautiful sunset out there tonight as you're driving down the highway, unbelievers will see that and take pleasure in it just like you will. But the difference is, you know the artist. You know the creator. You have a personal relationship with him through Jesus Christ. And you're going to see that and you're going to give glory to him. You need to treat every good gift in your life the same way. The good things that God has created are a means to the end of worshiping and loving God. And so that's what Paul means in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when he says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Yeah, that's not just an obligation for a believer. It's got to be the desire of your heart. So in conclusion, look at the things in your life. Do they reveal God's glory to you on a consistent basis? Do they draw you towards him or distract you away from him? And how willing are you to give them up if that's the will of God? The way to avoid the sin of materialism isn't asceticism. It's thankful consecration of the good things that God has placed in your life, the gifts that he's given to you. And so let me summarize here the three effects that the gospel should have on how you live with the created things that God has given. First of all, our joy and satisfaction must be based in him and not in the gift. That's why Habakkuk chapter 3 talks about material gifts, good things, but says, I don't need them. I enjoy them, but I don't need them. This is what he says. Though the fig tree does not bud, or there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen or no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. God's creation is very good, but we don't need it to be joyful because we have Christ. Secondly, if we enjoy God's gifts the right way, we will be free from the enslaving power of material things. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, or as he says, as we saw a moment ago, to the pure, all things are pure, but I will not be mastered by anything. I enjoy good gifts, but I don't need them, and they have no power over me as a disciple of Christ. And then thirdly, and in some ways most importantly, to enjoy God's good gifts the way that he intends means that you will want to pass God's good gifts along. Philip Ryken says, true gratitude for God's gifts always leads to generosity. True gratitude always leads to generosity. I don't deserve this. It was a gift to me from God. What a joy it is to share that gift with others. That's where it should lead, is generosity and giving to others. That would be truly using God's good gifts in the way that he intends. Let me close by reading how Paul ends 1 Timothy over in chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. 
As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. Father, you have immersed us in many good earthly material gifts. Lord, we admit to you, confess to you, that many times they have become idols to us. Many times we have coveted what others have had and have worried and felt insecure because of what we felt we lacked. Lord, teach us to use the things you have given in a way that brings honor and glory to you and that blesses others. Change our hearts so that we might truly enjoy your gifts, but yet not be under their mastery. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.